Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Prudence is about, it's above all about choosing what's virtuous, right? So it's about acting rightly and living a virtuous or moral life. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone, again. This is Mariana Orlandi from the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, and welcome to another content-related episode of our podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. And we just created this title so that it's difficult, almost impossible for me to pronounce it. So today with us, we have Dr. Eric Dempsey. Good morning, Mariana. Good morning. Dr. Dempsey is a lecturer here at UD Austin and the assistant director of the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Study of Court Text and Ideas at UD Austin. Is that correct? That's correct. How long have you been here, Dr. Dempsey? I believe it's nine years. Wow. Where from originally? I am, well, I was born in New York. I grew up in a little town called Hastings on Hudson, just outside the city. I did my undergraduate studies at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. That's where I started studying the great books, and that's where I developed. Wait, wait, yeah, no, I wanted to stop you because that's something I read. I, you know, I read your bio, of course, even though I know you not from your bio, but from our conversation. And you mentioned that's where you started studying the great books seriously. And my comment was, yeah, there are way too many people that study them, but not seriously enough. Was that on purpose that you just, like, was that the seriously added there? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I picked up the great books long before that. So the first time I remember being exposed to the great books, I was in, I believe, fifth grade. <laughs> and my grandmother, who was Norwegian and who immigrated here uh, via Hungary, gave me a copy of Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. All right. Yes, guys. So we can all close our books. Uh, we're never going to be better than Dr. Dempsey because if no. you start with Aquinas in fifth grade, I mean, who's going to beat you on that? I bet there are lots of people who beat me on that. That was before I began to study the great books seriously. I just picked it up and was kind of like in awe of this very complicated and magisterial looking text. Um, and my sort of the idea that I should study these books for a living hatched at some point around then, but it wasn't until I got to be an undergraduate when I was a little older and I had some sense of what that study entailed that I thought I could take it seriously. Wow. Well, I look forward to having you again and talking more about just the experience of the great books, which is something typically American and it's not a European thing, like using the great books as an instrument of like teaching themselves, right? You don't really need professors, you just need the great books, basically. And, and this concept, it's very alien to European ears. Um, but the reason we have you here today is... Your love for the great books is a love that also made you study Aristotle, and you are offering a seminar on Aristotle and prudence to our UT Austin students that are coming to the to the Austin Institute and to our activity. So I think we, we chose the right person in trying to figure out who could, could do that because of your love for the great books, but also I overread that your dissertation, the topic of your dissertation was about prudence. Am I right? That's correct. And that's what my scholarly work is about too. That's the man, the book manuscript that I'm putting to bed this semester is about prudence and Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Both of them. Mostly Aristotle, but yes, about both of them. Okay. And how does Machiavelli enter that picture? 
it doesn't figure into the writing that I've done, but I wanted him in this seminar. So our podcast listeners might not know. We're doing three sessions. The first two, we're reading parts of Aristotle's Ethics, and the third, we're reading parts of Machiavelli's Prince. Machiavelli has an idea of prudence that's different from Aristotle's, right? For Aristotle, prudence takes its bearings from a certain notion of moral virtue, right? Um, it's above all about choosing the virtuous action. Machiavelli has a prudence, has a, an understanding of prudence that's more focused on acquiring one's ends and not acquiring the things one wants, right? That doesn't take it, that doesn't take virtue as an end in itself so much, but a means to the things that you want to acquire. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what you're trying to teach, right? Or to have the students read themselves in this uh, the text from Aristotle is how he, is that correct? Like you, you're just letting them see this, right? Yes, that's true. And Aristotle's notion of prudence, I would say, is, is bound up to his or moral life in a way that doesn't resemble Machiavelli's account of it, right? It's, it's sort of, prudence is about, it's above all about choosing what's virtuous, right? So it's about acting rightly and living a virtuous or moral life. Whereas for Machiavelli, prudence is, I mean, it is a virtue for him, but it's much more about acquiring things beyond virtue itself. Yeah, I'll pretend I didn't pick up how you chose an Italian author that, you know, is the infamous memories. It sounds like the Italians, if they have to be prudent, they must be these creatures that just look at their, you know, their their immediate benefit and offer. Although I think, and I think we will have scholars talk about that, that Machiavelli might have. Um, and I want to ask you about that too, if Machiavelli might have. Another way of being read with maybe a little more mercy than it's <laughs> it's usually the case. But before we get there, about Aristotle and his concept of prudence, can you help us figure out that circular reasoning by which Aristotle says, well, in order to have virtue to act virtuously, you have you have to have the virtue. And in order to acquire the virtue, you have to act virtuously. So it sounds like it's just a circular reasoning. Yeah, and this is one of the things that I've tried to convey in the seminar, right? That there's a problem with understanding prudence as Aristotle presents it. Let me just lay it out a little bit. So when Aristotle explains what the work of a moral virtue is, right? This is in book two, chapter six. He defines it in terms of prudence, right? He says the work of virtue is as reason determines, which means as a prudent person would determine it to be, right? So mm. prudence itself figures into the definition of what moral virtue is. Um, so of all moral virtues, even though prudence is a virtue. Yeah, prudence is not a moral virtue because it's an intellectual virtue. Okay, um, so, uh, so in the definition, I'll just try to repeat so to see if I got it correctly. In yeah. the definition of a moral virtue, we have the mention of a virtue, which is prudence, which right. is not a moral virtue, but an intellectual one. That's right. Okay, so still, in order to acquire these moral virtues, if I'm correct, we are already exercising an intellectual one? Well, okay, so you acquire the moral virtues through practice, right? You acquire them through just doing moral things. You become courageous by doing courageous things okay, again so and again. Okay, so courage is one of the moral ones? Yeah, the moral virtues are the ones that especially have to do with action. Aristotle's got 11 of them, courage, moderation, justice, liberality, those kinds okay, of things. Okay, okay. The definition of moral virtues has this reference to prudence. Right. It's a reference to an intellectual virtue. So not a moral virtue, but a reference to, to prudence itself. When Aristotle later goes on to explain how prudence works, he, he 
explains that in terms of virtue, right? So he says, the question is how prudence recognizes in particular circumstances which actions are virtuous and which ones are not. Um, the problem is that when he's explaining that, he says that it's virtue itself that gives the end to prudence, right? That it's not um, – uh, he doesn't refer to any kind of outside standard in light of which you could make that judgment. So you have these two statements that seem to leave you in a kind of hopeless circle where virtue is defined in terms of prudence, but in explaining how virtue – how prudence works, Aristotle appeals to virtue itself as what – that thing by which prudence sets its sights. So the two are both defined in terms of the other, and it seems like a kind of hopeless circle. Hmm. And so what is the way out? <laughs> well, there are different ways of thinking about the way out. For Aristotle, it seems to me, there's no real way out. The problem is a genuine one, and it's meant to reflect, this is something we talked about a lot in the seminar, right? It's in a way meant to reflect a genuine limitation on the part of prudence and with that, a limitation on the part of moral virtue. Kind of pretentious term for this, it's a, this is a phrase that I steal from my dissertation advisor, is a certain recalcitrance to self-understanding that one finds within the morally virtuous life. Let me try to put that in, in kind of more normal terms. Please, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What that means, so another way this has been described is that moral virtue represents a kind of closed circle, right? It's something that you can only fully appreciate if you are morally virtuous, if you've had the upbringing that helps you appreciate that the virtues, what the virtues are. So in order to appreciate a hero, you need to... No, what, what what does that mean exactly? Like, yeah, good. Go couldn't a mean person appreciate a hero and his courage? Somebody who's a coward. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's good. It's not that the moral virtues aren't admirable from outside, right? They can be, right? You might not have them, but they might be admirable, and especially things like the heroic virtues, right? They're going to impress people who are not themselves. Virtuous. Moral virtue for Aristotle is a kind of particular category, right? It's a particular way of looking at the good life that depends on having the right upbringing and having the right training and coming to appreciate the virtues as ends in themselves. There are other admirable human types, even within Aristotle's account, that don't quite fit with that model, I think, right? Um, the heroes are, are a little bit different than the morally, I mean, in book seven, which we don't read. He talks about a kind of heroic virtue that looks like it's grander than merely moral virtue. Moral virtue is a particular kind or a particular way of, of living the virtuous life. I'm not yeah. sure I put that clearly. It's enough. fascinating. So, so, no, I more, think yeah. you did, or maybe I'm I'm maybe I've overheard <laughs> this conversation with other fellows, uh, researcher, you know, in Princeton and talk about and writings about habituation and how he believes, and Aristotle makes this point of, you know, you habituate yourself to the virtue, but then you will act truly virtuously only when you don't need the habituation anymore, when you're doing it for its own sake. Yeah. Right. right? Is that correct? Yeah. Did so I there's pass the test. <laughs> yeah. There's a turn at a certain point, right? The person who does morally virtuous actions repeatedly at a certain point, like, and this just makes sense from normal life, right? When you're a little kid, you do things, you do. You might do the right thing, but you do it mostly because your parents tell you to, because you're going to be punished if you don't do it. And at a certain point, there's something, and Aristotle never really explains this, it's just something that happens at a certain point. Rather than doing the virtues because you're instructed to do so or because you're scared not to, 
you come to appreciate them as ends in themselves, right? So being courageous, being moderate, being generous with your money, all of those things, right? You come to appreciate as intrinsically good rather than burdens that you bear because someone's forcing you to. Yeah, you start in very practical terms. You start realizing that sleeping in a tidy room is so much better and nicer to wake up there the morning afterwards that you don't need your mom to be telling you that anymore. Is that correct or yeah, but, not exactly? But the case? weird thing is the the very peak is cleaning up the tidy room, right? It's the action itself, not the accidental not goods the that follow from it. Yeah, so he's really insistent that virtue is something that should be chosen for its own sake. And that means not choosing it because you want to be wealthy or famous. It means choosing virtue because virtue is something good. So let me ask you this, because I think that for our audience, this is fascinating and is new. Students want to hear that, A. And B, <laughs> students want to live that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, Aristotle is... I, I mean, nowadays, right? So the students you have, the ones you meet here at the Institute, you want, you, the ones you meet at the Jefferson Center, they're not reading Aristotle saying, oh, what's the sake of a virtuous life? They actually are fascinated by the idea that there is some truth in there. Or, is, or am I, I think that that's the I think that's true. I think Aristotle is not, so he's not the thinker who's easiest of access. He just wants to explain courage is, what justice is, at least well-raised people have that mm. understanding. And rather than, I mean, it's not that he's closed to thinking about it. He's not, right? But that he thinks that that knowledge that we bring to it is is worth enough for practical life, mostly. And I think students get that, right? That they understand. I mean, to make Aristotle accessible takes, I think, a little more work than, than, than Plato, but you can think about it. I but it's still reading. amazing. I mean, yeah. you are comparing it to Plato, which already means they're in, they're interested in Plato. That's true, yes. Which, I mean, we, you take it for granted, but there are many people out there driving and listening to us that think, which what, what kind of student would read today Plato, Aquinas, and Aristotle? And I think maybe we're blessed by meeting all of them, but there are a lot of students like that that are actually interested in this kind of things. I think that's very true. And I have a somewhat more, I think, democratic understanding of a great book's education than a lot of my colleagues. I think if you put something, you put these books in front of students and you can just state the simple questions and simple ideas that they introduce clearly, then they do have a kind of immediate interest, right? And what about the students? Because that's what interests me and our audience too. The question being, young generations that are the ones you meet at UT Austin. I, I believe it's undergraduate mostly that you are in contact yeah, with. Yeah, I teach undergrads exclusively. Okay, so you teach undergraduates. They had, we all had COVID, but uh, you talk to them more than probably <laughs> the, the, the ones listening to us do. Do you think they are, A, prudent, which is a simple question. Second question would be erring. Do you think they err most on the side of being cowards or on the opposite <laughs> side of being, you know, reckless. Uh, uh, where Where is the tendency? Yeah. And is there, you know, yeah, where do you see the, you know, the, the risks and or the positive aspects of? Well, the first question, are they prudent? No. I have lots of bad things to say about modernity generally, but I do not think that it's ever been the case that most 18-year-olds were prudent. Uh, so I that, think that at least that, that comes change? somewhat with okay. age, yes. Okay. Are they more? Well, that's already, it's, you know, it's, really, it's a relief. Something is still the same. <laughs> um, I guess in sometimes in places you have to grow up faster, but I think that usually, definitely our 18-year-olds are not prudent. 
One thing I have found about students is that they are very used to living accord to fixed rules and expectations, right? Even when I assign papers, right? Just getting them, I find one of the toughest things is to get them to think for themselves, that they're really very used to just producing something in accord with very strict rules that their teachers have given them. They know exactly what to do to get exactly the grade that they want. And I think that's not good for intellectual courage, right? Um, and the, it's, it's also the opposite of prudence, right? Because the way I read it is prudence yeah. is find your solution based on the circumstances. Yeah. One of the things about prudence is that it does not operate in accord with simple fixed rules. Okay. So our goal is how to teach them how to behave where there is no clear rule, right? Yeah. Hmm. And do you think we can make that happen? Is that going to be a process just of learning or... Well, I can raise questions for them. I can't, you know, go out and tell them how to live in their their private lives. And at some point, you can put books in front of students, but you can't help them figure out how to be bold. Um, no, true. Uh, but if or, they're or good, how to take risks I just want to get you before we we say goodbye and thanking you for this. I I just would like. I loved during your seminars your mention of Churchill. I think there there is an interesting parallel when you're saying, well, you, you say to yourself, tell us about the prudence and how you brought up the Churchill's view of prudence or... Oh, well, I said a couple of things about Churchill. One, he's a kind of, I mean, you know, people in my school tend to refer to Churchill as an example of a prudent person or, an ex- or someone who looks like an example of Aristotle's morally virtuous human being. But one of the things that goes with that, right, and this is, I guess, what I was trying, this, this comes back to that thing I said before that just sounded pretentious about the recalcitrance to self-understanding, right? So Churchill is, on the one hand, a very thoughtful individual, right? He thought deeply about politics, and you can see that. Like, if you read his Life of Marlborough, or if you read his thoughts, he's got this book, Great Contemporaries, which are little biographies of several of the people that, that he knew. You can see that he really thought deeply about human life, but then when it comes to philosophy, right, really thinking about what you would call first principles, right, inquiring into the foundations of moral life, in a way it doesn't go that deep, right? I mean, I, he's got this line and um, he's got this book, My Early Life, right, which is an autobiography of the first, I, I forget when it ends exactly, but it's the mm-hmm. first few decades of his life. And in there at one point, he addresses the question of free will, right? And he compares it to those butterflies, which, you know, you look at from one side and they look very drab and bland. And you look at it from the other side and they look beautiful, right? And he said he always thought that the difference between free will and determinism came to something like that, right? Um, If you put that in front of Thomas Aquinas or John Calvin, they might dig their heels in a little and say, well, you have to think about this a little more deeply. Um, okay, here, guys, I stand in defense of Churchill on this, in this one, but okay. Yeah, you probably don't have the, Cal- the same Calvinist um, sympathies I do. But so in a way, he just says the question doesn't really matter, right? It's, it's, it's not important for practice. And that's perfectly compatible with him having like really deep knowledge of how to act and really, in a way, a really deep understanding of human beings, right? It's not thoughtless. It's just that there are certain questions that he doesn't that don't bother him, as it were, right? They just they just kind of fall off. Prudence has something of that character, right? It's not philosophy. That, that you mean that prudence is something like that in at least Aristotelian ways of looking at it. Yes. So compared to the contemplative life. Yes, right? In Thomas Aquinas, it's a little bit different, right? Thomas Aquinas has a version of prudence that's a little more 
uh, I would say philosophical, more, um, not philosophically robust. It's more, it's, yeah, it's probably, well, I could say that. We did talk about Aristotle and Prudence, and we'll have Professor Budzicevsky tell us about Thomas of Aquinas and Prudence. So we could actually leave our audience waiting and how that would be different in Aquinas. What'd you say? I think it's a good idea. He's also a very different kind of Italian than Niccolò Machiavelli, so you'll get a... Yeah, you, you true. Get a, 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 one, one point for me on this case. All right. <laughs> and my country. All right. So thank you very much, Dr. Dempsey. We we'll look forward to having you back. And thank you, Mariana. Thank you for your fun. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.